The following is the Women's Liberation Music Hour, presented by Phoenix on WLRN. We will never, never, never lose our way to the way. Of our memory, memory, and the power, power of our living flame, it will rise. Liberation Music on WLRN, Women's Liberation Radio News. 
This is Phoenix, and I'll be your DJ for the next hour. And this next hour, I've brought back the Wanderground stories of the Hill Women from the Well of Our Memories, uh, to use the words of uh, Karuna's Way to the Well that you just heard. The Wanderground was written by Sally Miller Gearhart back in the, let's see, I should know this by heart, 19. 78. Um, and I read the first part of this book to you back in February of this year, I believe. It's now December 10th of 2018. So if you want to go back and reread or listen to that, you don't have to because these stories pretty much stand on their own. So I'm going to continue reading that because it has been, it's a good book in and of itself, I think, uh, though others may agree with me, disagree with me. (laughs) There are many that might agree. Um, But I wanted to also go back to it because I've had a really hard, hard week. The the women and the girls around me um, have been really, I've just, we've all just been confronting up close and personal male evil. I, you know, you can talk, call male supremacy, male dominance, Kurgan's, uh, patriarchy, and, you know, this week it all crystallized to evil. Um, that is a Christian term, and, of course, I am not a Christian, and disagree with a lot of their concepts and belief systems and cosmology. However, I really get and in, 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 in great agreement with uh, notions of evil, um, because that is the only term I have to name the level of hatred and psychic control and power over girls and females. Um, Yeah, it's just been really awful this week in particular. So I have had for my own sanity needed to go back to the Wanderground and read about a time when... Uh, these women, even though they are fictional, they represent our potential, I think, um, of using psychic power and bonds and connections with other women and girls in good ways, in ways that are for the collective good and collective protection and well-being of, of females on their planet which is not that far from our planet right now. I'll tell you what, you know that. So that's what I'm doing this week, and I hope you enjoy it. It's hard. Some of these chapters that I'm going to be reading are hard. Um, and they're also very powerful because of the, the level of uh, connectedness that these women are devoted to, um, as well as their devotion to one another's freedom to choose whatever they need to do with the atrocities. So, interspersed, I'll be playing music from Karuna and also Kitka. So I hope you enjoy. Take good care. Blessed be.
morning together. In the summer, Seja's nest had no walls at all, only a roof against occasional rainfall and a view in every direction of countless subtle greens and dancing sunlight. To sleep with Seja in the summer months rarely meant sleeping only with Seja. Usually there were at least three bodies in her thick pine-needled bed, and frequently four or five. Alaka had grown to expect not only the ensconcement animals that sought out Seja, but the creatures of the wilder forest as well, from chipmunks and squirrels to lizards and once a black bear cub. But it was another season now, one that Alaka had not shared with Seja. So her waking on the morning after her arrival had in it a quality of surprise, of strangeness. Her short circle stretch upon first reaching awareness was as natural to her, to all the women, as breathing. In it she found safety and quiet, but some familiarity. Earth touched to you, Alaka. Her sweep had brushed the night watch and opened now to a welcoming enfoldment. And to you. Are you Beulah? No, no, Tuka. After your rest, we'll meet. We both cook this evening. Good. A broad, deep day to you, Notuka. And to you. As the woman's mind touched gently fell away, Alaka strained in the slow dawn to inspect Seja's nest, a nest very different from that of her summer visit. First of all, she realized that there were no animals beside her, or, as she recalled with a smile, between her and the sleeping woman a few centimeters away. Then there were the walls, structures heavily draped with broad sweeps of cloth and apparently well insulated, though with what Alaka could not yet imagine. The walls were secured between the four round poles, which in summer supported only their low roof. An undersized Dutch door faced her in the south wall, and its open top offered the room its only possibility of light. Finally, there was the floor. She remembered the floor very well from the summer when Seja had been rearranging it. Books, hundreds of them, stacked at different thicknesses within rectangular wood sections. Best insulation ever, Seja had said, and quite an experience to be walking on all that knowledge. To Alaka's amazement, Seja had demonstrated a remarkable recall of what books were where and could quickly lay hands on any title she had. Now she noted that Seja's reading had rendered the floor pretty uneven in places. Two children's books opened by the door had left a gap that a French grammar was failing to fill, and next to two texts on plant diseases right near her reach was a long hole whose bottom, Alaka could see, was the dark earth itself. She picked up a book and examined it. There was no sign of mildew. Seja must bathe them in dryness every day, she thought. The books were an acquisition from the deserted library at Early Town. Seja had claimed all that the women in the Remember Rooms and others had not wanted. It had not been entirely satisfactory, Alaka recalled Seja saying. At first, some women had insisted on burning all the books. Seja and others had spent long hours in sister search with these women before any clear wish had been reached. Then, after that, sisters from both ensconcements and the cochleus had figured Seja for the local librarian, stretching to her at all hours to ask about some obscure title. 
Now that she examined more carefully, Alaka noted that behind the hanging books was also the primary wall insulation. She surveyed all of the details of Sage's living quarters, feeling the nest's uniqueness. As she lay warm and at ease in the simplicity of the room, she puzzled over whether they were Sage's forever or a rotated possession. She marveled at the care that had gone into the winterizing of the tiny space. Particularly was she marveling at the floor, wondering what treasures of literature their bed was covering, when a bright, fresh mind stretch enfolded her, inviting her attendance. Seja was awake. Morning, Seja announced. Alaka opened, and at the same time turned to hug the grinning head above the snuggling body. Cold? Seja was sending. No, you? Alaka responded aloud. No, also aloud. I never had it so good. Never had such fine walls, never had such a warm floor, never had such a soft body beside me. Alaka cut her off by stretching her bare self top to toe against Seja. Even your brown bear cub? Couldn't hold a candle to you, Seja assured her. Alaka's mood altered only a bit as she shifted back to the swifter communication mode. In her mind, she showed Seja that she missed the animals. Seja promptly formulated in her mind the sensations and categories and connections that told Alaka how in winter any strays were welcomed in the ensconcement's half-underground barn, or if the social relations became strained there, how they then were taken in at the main hall, which was at night given over to shelter for anyone who needed it. Still, Seja observed, she had occasional animal visitors. Thus, their day was beginning. Even within so comparatively young a relationship as Alaka and Seja's, there had grown between them certain rituals of loving, rituals of working, rituals of eating and sleeping. The early morning ritual of beginning together preceded that day along familiar lines. In mutual mind effort from across the room, they unfolded the tea water, requesting it to boil, aiding it with its consent in doing so. They swung the door closed and ignited a glow lobe to make a softer dawn within the nest. They propped up their backs against the books on the north wall, balancing teacups on the quilts as they shared in silent recall the dreams of the night and fantasized at will wherever dreams seemed incomplete. They talked aloud with frosty breaths about whatever news needed telling. This morning, that news began with Sage's description of the comedy being planned by a group of women at the Western Ensconcement. She ended the monologue on that subject by saying, They're all in wood readying this month and apparently rehearse as they cut and gather. They claim they're tired of sober epics and the agonies of the purges and the hunts. Supposed to be pretty funny. Out of the embryonic uneasiness that had lurked for days just below her consciousness, Alaka sensed in Sage's words a diminishing enthusiasm. Some pal seemed to overtake them both, dulling any high spirits. They sat motionless for a long moment, inwardly tempting a quiet despair. Alaka articulated it first. There are rumors that potent men are outside the cities. Sage's sudden grasp shook her physically. How do you know, Sage was almost shouting. How do you know that, Alaka? Ease, thought Alaka, closing her eyes. Soothes and ease. She enfolded Sage in a care curl, 
desperately trying to handle the turmoil that was bubbling out of her lover. Bird news. She made a deeper cradle of her arms, but Seja was up, up and out of bed now. She paced. She talked as she paced and then threw on her clothes without interrupting her stride or her sentences. I've told no one, Alaka. I'd hoped it happened to her long ago, not recently, or I hoped it was only a nightmare that she had made real in order to purge it or something. Who, Seja? What are you talking about? Margaret. That crazed woman I met in the clearing near the eastern ensconcement two weeks ago, the one wearing all that armor. She'd been raped and not in the city. Do you hear that? Not in the city, Alaka. There hasn't been a potent man outside the city in our living memory. These reports and Margaret's story have to mean that the effect is in holding. As soon as they discover that the country no longer drains their drive, they'll be back right on us again. Alaka was trying to convince herself as much as Seja. Only one man, Seja, may be a fluke. But Seja was shaking her head. Two men. She was taken by two men in the short hills far east of the city. Then they dressed her in that armor as a joke, took it out of some school museum and set her loose laughing and throwing rocks at her as she scrambled away from them through the brush. She didn't tell me any of this. She couldn't talk or mind stretch, but she opened to me and let me read her recalls. At that, Seja kicked loose an oversized book. She had been clenching and unclenching her fists, and now, with a stark, sustained throat noise, she put both her hands into her thick curls and pulled fiercely as if to uproot both her hair and the memory. For the second time in a day, Alaka realized that she had failed to shade herself. Her grand, old-fashioned, female style she had tried to protect Seja but she left her own lower channels open. As Seja renew Margaret's horror and outrage, Alaka, too, was absorbing the free force of the armored woman's experience. She was aware that she was going to be deeply and violently ill. In the split second before she grasped that knowledge, she reminded herself of some irony that she, a remember guide, should herself fall so near retrosense, and that she, who characteristically hesitated to give up any personal control, should now be in the grip of an emotional turbulence so strong that it racked her body. The room was reeling. Even as she crawled towards the door, Alaka was nattering in her head about what great literary masterpiece might fall heir to her vomit. She made only a superficial note of Seja, who stood still, head in hands, galvanized against the east wall. Thrusting one knee in front of the other, one hand in front of the other, she crawled slowly forward, holding in delicate balance the urge to faint and the urge to empty the whole world out of her stomach. Another wave of nausea propelled her to the door. She achieved the fresh air, but not the earth. As she had baptized Sage's step, choking and heaving, she tried to be glad she had made it thus far. Then she wasn't glad of anything, or sorry, she gulped some of the sharp air and, with a huge sigh, felt her head fall forward on the door sill, there to be transformed into a puffy white cloud floating up to the top of the sky.
Alaka really didn't care that Notuka's mind stretch was enfolding her, frantically asking for explanation, or that Seja was now screaming, or that the taste of last night's late supper was with her again. She drifted high above it all, wearing a top hat with mesh stockings, smoking a long white cigarette with a ruby-red filter and a slim, sexy holder. Besides, there was a sunshine tree draped over her left shoulder, and she was busy distributing the day from its dripping leaves. Rowena and Beulah are both coming. They'll be there right away, Notuka's mind stretched aroused Alaka. No, she sent. Wait, it's not over, and we're all right. She was sobered now and brought harshly back to the present. In the few short seconds that Alaka had been out, Seja had dropped to the floor into a fetal posture. Her scream was still in the air. Alaka sent spanners out to catch the approaching women. She found them open, one coming from the watch post, the other hurrying from the barn. Rowena, Beulah, she sent. It will be good that you come, but stay back. She has not yet touched her anger, and she needs to go alone until then. Are you well, Alaka? Beulah was sending. No, not at all. We're a pretty sight here, both of us, vulnerable and wiped out. But I'm beyond it now. Stay quiet if you come. Seja needs to finish. Beulah and Rowena assented, and Alaka turned back to her lover. Seja had yielded entirely to the memory, yielded with no protection. She was clearly, in full retro sense, tensed in rigid paralysis there on the floor by the book of plant diseases. Inside her head, Margaret's ugly drama was still raging. Apparently, even the remember rooms had not prepared Seja for this more visceral experience of rape. What would we do if it were happening in our hard selves, Alaka wondered, when we were this overwhelmed by a memory? Even as she asked, she knew the answer, or knew at least what she, Alaka, would do. She was constructing her own shield now, regaining control, moving in the familiar patterns of a remember guide. She did not try in her hard self to reach Seja, though she was less than a short meter from her. She was not sure she could have done that at this moment, even if it had been called for. Instead, she enfolded Seja in a steady, short stretch of drenching greens and blues, of major chords and leading tones drawn to constancy with coolness and of sturdiness. As she unfolded, she sent the constant message, The facing of the fear is yours, but you are not alone. She was regaining her center. She sat up now, leaning against the doorframe, still soothing, still sending. There was nothing else to be done for now. In her function as a remember God, Alaka had rechanneled thousands of rapes, thousands of killings and tortures, rechanneled them hundreds of times, scenes of the more, most sordid and grotesque nature, atrocities she had not dared to experience without memory shields. It was, in fact, the job of a remember God to call up and replay, for those who did not know it, all or any part of the Hill women's violent backgrounds. Decades ago, each woman who had escaped to the hills had offered, usually with great pain, the memory of her city experience, however dramatic or mild, however heroic or horror-ridden. Her experience, as she had known it, had been added then to the vessels of memory kept within the person of every hill woman. Lest we forget how we came here. 
From countless seemingly disconnected episodes, the women had pieced together a larger picture so that now they had some sense of what had happened during those last days of the city. Over the years, as women had joined them, the memory vessels had been added to. More and more stories, more and more horrors, and sometimes a narrative that brought with it some hope or humor. As a woman shared, she became part of all of their history. Regularly, now women went to the Remember Rooms in the Cochleus to watch as Remember Guides rechanneled the old stories. Often they elected not to shield or to shield only partially as they watched so that they might experience a story, a description with more nearly its full reality. That was when they needed the Remember Guides' greatest skill, the skill of allowing with patient and calm attention the intensity of retrosense and sometimes the intensity of madness to run its course. The stories of outrage were the deepest always and usually the oldest. Now Margaret's would take its place with others. It would do so more significantly, a lack of fear, because of what that story might mean to all of them. Alaka looked over at Seja. Even if she had not been sustaining contact with the turbulence that was in that curly head, Alaka would have recognized the signs of an uncontrollably rising anger. In her experience, that anger inevitably followed any recall of rape, particularly if the recall had been even slightly unguarded. Seja was stirring, breathing hard, beginning to move her fists in soft, steady blows against the floor. Even with her shield, Alaka almost recoiled from the starkness, the unequivocal purity of the raging she found within the other woman, a naked and unadulterated desire to kill. Alaka scooted across the floor and covered Seja with her whole body, placing her neck on the other woman's neck and holding the side of her head against the wet cheeks. She made a strong appeal for attention. Seja, she short-stretched. Seja responded as if to an interruption. You're about to move into murderous energy. If you need to do that, we'll go through it with you. A hesitation. Alaka knew that Seja's eyes were open now and that they were sparkling far too brightly. She held and waited. She ached with Seja's outrage, cried with Seja's crying. Suddenly there was a strong tensing of muscles as her writhing body attempted to break from under her hold. I'm no match for her, Alaka thought, and at the same moment open stretched to Beulah and Rowena. Come! With a shriek, Seja threw her over, almost easily reversing their positions. As she sensed the violence being turned toward her, Alaka feared for the first time for her own safety. A shield was hardly relevant now. Things were moving too swiftly, and anyway they were too physically close, already deeply mixing their auras. Alaka was holding Sage's other hand, a fist out and away from her own face. That hand, too, sought to hurt. Alaka eased the pressure on her throat, but was having trouble containing Sage's uprised arm. The fist escaped once, and then again before she recaptured it. Each time it sought to land a heavy killing blow on her head. Alaka was amazed at her own calm. She was aware that a mind-stretched cradle was supporting them now from Beulah and Rowena, who must be approaching. Seja was having none of it. Too mild a soothing, sent Alaka. Bring your hard selves, and fast. The two struggling women were in the corner by the bed now, and Seja's arm was breaking free for a third time. She could kill me, Alaka thought. 
Then, as if the earth had decided gracefully to seize its turning, all motion seemed to stop. In a frozen moment, Alaka saw the woman above her not as lover, not even as crazed and outraged sister. It all seemed mock heroic at first, and Alaka could almost hear a militant musical score in the background, but it became very serious. Seja was a warrior, strong, righteous, brave, committed. She rode bare-breasted under a brilliant helm of crescent horns and flanked by bold and bright-clad sisters. Stone-faced, powerful, beautiful, highly trained and self-disciplined, she was the virgin, the one unto herself, the spirit of the untrodden snow, whose massive hands were as unflinching in battle as they were gentle in love and her sword rang on the shields of men who dared to violate the sanctity of womankind. Here was no passive damsel, here none of the forgiveness of the soft supine woman. He who rapes must die, a simple maxim by which to live your life, by which to die yourself if that is necessary. Now there was the fighter, flushed with valor, sworn to death or triumph, and now here was the calm victor, not rejoicing in the kill, but looming over her vanquished enemy at this very moment about to let fall the fatal blow. My enemy, by definition, cannot receive my love. My enemy, by definition, is the one I kill. It is not in his nature not to rape. It is not in my nature to be raped. We do not coexist. Seja, the woman of war, Seja, the righteous killer, the ringing battle cry, enough! And the thunder of defiant hooves, the slashing of avenging swords. The earth began to move again. The vision vanished. There was Sage's hand about to descend on her own immobile face. Alaka had no strength to turn aside again. She closed her eyes and waited. The blow never fell. Instead, she was breath robbed by the sudden pressure of a collapsing mountain. Seja was crushed against her, and on top of Seja, two other figures were piled straining and grunting as they brought wild arms and legs into a tense control. Alaka, barely breathing, set her attention to a short stretch. Rowena and Beulah were there. So was a murderous, defiant Seja. Her low, sustained, struggling cries undergirded the four-way mind stretch. "'Your choice, Seja,' Beulah was saying. "'Your choice.' We release you, and you go free to do whatever harm you wish to yourself, but no other, or you yield to us here, and let us hold you, give you earth, your choice. Your choice, repeated Rowena. Your choice, Seja, a lack assent. The mound of bodies moved less feverishly. They waited. Seja tried in vain to move. Alaka cried quietly. Still they held and waited, Alaka clasping Seja from below, Rowena and Beulah pinning her from above. Your choice, they all sent out. Your choice. Silence, holding. The bodies began to quiver. Then they shook. Then they were rocking up and down, rising and falling as Seja's sobs grew loudly. Her heaving intakes became more elongated, her releases each a series of short, rough, declining coughs. She screamed. The three women around her sent quick, thick shields to their ears. She screamed again, 
and again. The whole nest is shaking, thought Alaka, crushed beneath her sisters. Sager released another body-racking cry. Alaka thought, oh, I wish I had some of that air. She did not get a deep breath for quite a while. Sager continued coming down for a long time, and Alaka would not have broken the releasing for any reward she could imagine, nor for any threat save her own untimely death. Seja lay quiet and exhausted on her bed. Beulah and Alaka stroked her body, her head and limbs. A few curious and caring guinea hens pecked around the bed, and a golden retriever lay by the door anxiously watching Seja. Rowena was clearing the ground outside for earth-sharing, and around the entire nest there was a rhythm of concern pulsing in and out as women over the ensconcement inquired about and sent enfoldings to Seja. The sun was high now. No need for that glow lobe, thought Alaka. She looked down at Seja, not yet fully conscious. Then there was a reaching out from the inert body, a mind stretched to Alaka. Welcome to the peaceful beauty of the western ensconcement, it said. Alaka smiled. Seja was going to be fine. She gave the deep curls an extra loving tug and then extinguished the glow lobe. You are listening to WLRN. Sve 
snakes. Clana had the entire morning free. Bintu, who was her learned together today, was called to the wander ground, and the only other girl child in the ensconcement lay abed with her own learned together. Clana stood in a wide patch of low bushes on hard ground tangled with briars and weeds. There opened under her only the tiniest of holes, no more than her smallest tooth in diameter. She knelt and scratched around the opening, amazed to see part of the red dirt fall away. It revealed a darkness as large as her fist. On both knees now, she dug. The winter sun on her back was unusually warm and encouraging. Beyond her, the forest crackled with its contrapuntal life sounds. Clanna reached under a berry bush and dislodged a piece of shale to help her dig. The hole was even bigger now and dropped from a vertical into a more horizontal blackness. I've found a digger's hole, she thought. And with that, she sat back on her turned-in feet and closed her eyes. Laying her digging rock carefully aside, she placed her hands on her bare thighs and began thinking. Thinking of badgers, moles, groundhogs, rabbits, all of those slick, furry little animals, particularly those that she could hold in her hand. She had hard-touched them before. She thought of all she knew about them, how they darted and scooted, how they squeaked, how they nibbled at hard grain clusters. She tried hard to remember everything about underground creatures. Where she could not remember, she imagined. Soon she was only physically present to the sun and the forest. Her soft self off rollicking in a far meadow with leaping rabbits and field mice. She talked with them as they understood talk. Among other things not quite so important, she told them that she would never, without their full consent, take life from any one of them, that she knew them to be as much of her flesh as was her own body, that she yielded to their need of her even to her own dying if their touch with the mother required that. Those promises made, she reached to stroke them all. They nestled her with their wet noses and placed their tiny thumping hearts next to her neck and head. She smelled their muskness and their fur, but not their blood. Blood smelling was very difficult, especially only in the soft self. Slowly and with a caution she was just learning, she put them aside, laying on them a last hold. She came back to her sitting self. The hole was still there. She felt ready to explore it now. Which of you will go, she said to her hands. With fondness and amazement, she held both her hands in front of her, trying to make a difference between them. She often got lost in her hands, stroking and kneading them. So fascinating were they to her. They were equally skilled. Perhaps the right hand more so, more often practiced in intricacies like needlework. She was still trying to break that habit, apparently residual from centuries of right-handed superiority. All will not be accomplished in one lifetime, the sisters were fond of saying. Looking now at both hands, she could make no decision. Both were healthy, both a bit sunburned from too much time at the stream the day before. She was a light skin, no doubt about that. 
She was thus in the minority in the ensconcement among so many dark women. Clana mused for a moment on her whiteness. That whiteness was a puzzle to her, for as far as she could make out, she looked not a bit like any one of her seven mothers, all so dark of skin and hair and eyes. Well, she said to her hands, anyway, one of you wants to go down the hall. Which one? Neither hand replied. Clana then pondered about sending both hands on the exploratory mission, but she dismissed the idea as impractical. Clearly, she could reach further with one hand, and besides, if there were frightened animals inside, injury to one hand was better than to two. Snakes! She had forgotten about snakes. Perhaps the inhabitant of the hole was a snake. A hasty sigh, and she sat back on her feet again, hands on her thighs. Snakes, she thought. She had not hard-touched or even seen too many. She knew that there were some with a fatal poison here in this climate. Even a family of water moccasins had been reported. But of the fast-killing, brightly-colored snakes or their cousin cobras, there had been none. Still, it was wise to protect against all possibility. She began from small, crawling snakes. The green and brown and gray ones, the baby ones and the brown ones, the striped ones and the speckled ones, the ones who scooted in the water and the ones who wished along the ground. She invited them over her arms and around her neck. They slithered over her warm body. In a quick movement of her mind, she unclothed herself so the small curves could slide over her back without encumbrance. She then invited the diamond backs the stub-tailed cottonmouths, and the orange-brown copperheads. She invited them by the hundreds to test her touch, to see her intent. In the hard world, she had never seen a coral snake, but she had seen stories of them. She drew on a low-hanging tree, a pencil-thin creature of red-yellow-black sections. It squirmed towards her, yawning and closing, yawning and closing. She motioned it to join the others, all entwining together around her in a congenial mass. The hissing was a conglomeration of varied intensities and lengths, mostly from the rattlers, she thought. They did claim a lot of the noise. She called the coral snake closer and asked for a dental examination. Obligingly, it flung open its mouth so she could see the tiny mountain ranges of teeth. It was good that such a small animal had that deadly protection. "'Introduce me to the cobras?' she asked. "'And there they came, beautifully graceful greenish limbs, "'suddenly not a tree at all, "'but free winding clusters of longer, larger snakes, "'very slick and very evenly thin. "'You are different from the stories I saw of you.' "'But she was hushed by the slow expansion of one rising neck and then another, "'as if the excitement were contagious.' Ranks of cobras gently, and with the weaving motion she remembered from the stories, swayed before her, their necks flattened and their bodies nodding left and right in a classic hypnotic dance. Clana was happy. This was what she had recalled. They reminded her of something else. All these so many kinds of cobras reminded her of the many kinds of constrictors. She had left out the constrictors from her party. Yes, she said, calling out the anacondas and the pythons and the boas, though the thought of their being in the tiny hole amused her. She saw a collection of forms and an interwoven ritual. No longer did she will it. 
Instead, the slithering life around her made its own rules, moved in its own postures and patterns. She did not retreat. A sensuous drumming, bizarre and disconnected, as of a thousand mixed heartbeats, rose from the background. Grass snakes lined up with the whip snakes to form a mid-air grid of unending motion. Big bodies became whole terrains for bouncing, dancing, smaller lines and curved masses. Clanna watched, fascinated, the splendid loud performance that played across her soft self. Other sounds came from nowhere, noises added at random that she did not recognize nor order, and underneath the uneven beats of those drums. As she watched and listened, she too began to move in sometimes clumsy, sometimes graceful steps with the serpent dance. Snakes climbed her body to make her movement their own. A misstep, her foot landed on the back of a large gray snake. It writhed and hissed. She was quick to hold out her hand. The noise rose in volume, increased in tempo. The gray snake swirled in time around her outstretched arm, and coiling about it swam up to her head. Instinctively, she raised her other hand, her feet still pushing out the rhythms together with a teeming mass of undulating bodies. The gray snake wavered for only a moment, then climbed and coiled to her other arm, moving upward and on it towards her outstretched fingers. She added her own keening voice to the hissing, sighing, purring, pounding, screeching, slickly swishing, rattling cacophony that surrounded her. The sound rose to a crescendo. Up and up it went until suddenly and without warning it broke off. All things froze into stone. And then she heard it. With the gray snake mounted high on her upraised hand, she heard the sound from the top of the world. One clear and unadulterated tone. One single voice. One single instrument. She could not tell its source. She heard it in her bowels and in her brain, and it sounded, she stood, and as it sounded, she stood transfixed, the gray snake risen inches above her lifted arm, it too immobilized and hearing. Clana on tiptoe and stretched to her topmost reach could not move. She had never touched such painful solitude. It held her rigid at the acme of a mighty intake of breath. It halted her blood. It stiffened her flesh. It impaled her on air and poured itself into the marrow of her bones. The note lasted forever. It lasted until the hearing itself was a silence. The torrents came then, torrents of rain washing over her from above in streams, pushing her own her arm down, her body down, until she lay entwined with a thousand multicolored, multiformed bodies all exhausted, all drained of any motion, all drenched by the rivers washing over them. She dared not move. She could not move. They lay there a long time. She found her breath only much later. She opened her eyes to see the sun a little higher in the sky, and her snake friends all fled. She had trouble remembering where she was. She felt the hole below her. She had rolled over onto it. Slowly, she pushed herself to her knees. Her head swam. She was drained. She had not learned to protect herself yet from the exhaustion of such experiences. She could not stand. Breathing deeply and deliberately, she revived herself. 
After a bit, she was able to stand and look at the hole. We never really got to meet, Hole. Maybe some other day. Bending over, she stroked the sides with both hands and tried to replace around the edges some of the dirt she had scooped from it. Finally, she left it loosely covered with leaves and branches. I never got to make my promise to the snakes, she thought. But no matter. She had visited with them in a way that neither she nor the snakes would forget. Wiping her hands on her short pants, she broke through the briars to the path and headed back to the ensconcement. Thank you, sisters, for sharing this last hour with me of women's liberation music and story by Sally Miller Gearhart and the stories of the Hill Women and the Wanderground. 
Thank you for going there with me. It's it's re reheartened me. And I leave you with this last song uh, by Kitka called Agute Vog, which is a Yiddish song. Uh, it means a good week. So I am grateful for this part of my week, as hard as it's been, and I wish you a good week and catch you in, in two more. Blessed be, take good care. So